We're going to do less simultaneously, but you're going to get as much stuff out as you ever had, and you're going to see this defect rate drop dramatically. You're going to see this predictability go up, we're going to, but we're going to work on less. Oh, and by the way, if we do this smart, I think I can cut 15% of the cost of orchestration out, and we can either reinvest that somewhere else, or we can reinvest it into production capacity. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This is a very special podcast. It's been months in the making. It's the <laughs> third part of a three-part interview with Dennis Stevens. So, Dennis, thank you for, for taking some time out of your afternoon. Yeah, Dave, happy to be here. I, I, I enjoy doing these. I just get I just get caught up in events. You're a busy man. So um, for the folks that are listening, before we start getting into everything, this is the third part of a series of interviews that are all focused on helping organizations figure out how to embrace change and helping develop capabilities within an agile organization that they need in order to accelerate learning, increase optionality, and um, improve their decision making. So we've already done two. One of them focused on how to incorporate market sensing capabilities into strategic planning. And we did another one on how to design an execution model that can provide feedback, which can then be incorporated back into strategic planning. So I'm going to have links to those at the bottom of the show notes. This one is going to focus on how to prioritize the work being done to maximize return. And I'm excited because this is the one I've been waiting for the most. And Dennis has had no health issues. Yeah, that's a big deal for me. <laughs> it's a big deal. We're very excited about that and grateful to you. Yeah. Nothing's broken. Nope. Everything's, everything's going pretty well. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, all right. So let's just get into this because you started talking about stuff before we in the pre-interview and I took me a few minutes to catch up and realize you were already talking about our topic. So um, when we get into the idea of how to prioritize work to maximize return, can we just start out with what we mean by return? Like what kind of return might you consider? Because it's not just financial, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. So you can, you can look at <clears throat> the different factors of business value that you're trying to drive. Um, most organizations are in money to are in business to make money. Um, they're also in business to stay in business over time. Um, what what return can mean is it can mean uh, driving the most dollars uh, short term. It can mean driving the highest satisfaction when you know that can, that translates into customer retention or recurring revenue. Um, it can mean driving the highest satisfaction for long term uh, relationship and growing in a market. So there's lots of different things that business value can mean. It can mean reducing uh, reputation risk or reducing risk in a market. So okay. it's pretty important to get explicit on what return is. Um, so that, because at some point as we get into this conversation, we're going to talk about, you probably can't do every idea that comes up. So you got to have some way of actually getting clear on what do you mean by return so you can prioritize the problems you're going to invest your capacity in solving. Okay. So I'm going to come back to that one in a second, but before we get to that one, who are we talking about doing the prioritization work here? Is it the, just the whole C-level or is it a product owner or some, some mix of that group? Yeah. So that's going to be interesting as well. Um, I, think, I think it's a fractal problem. I think you've got layers in most organizations of prioritization you have to do. Um, and I think there's constraints that have to be fed up for doing that prioritization, which we talked about earlier, the feedback mechanisms. Yeah. But, but, um, but getting explicit in an organization on what decision rights around prioritization belong where 
and, and then being able to communicate that context and those constraints around the organization are an important part of this problem as well, an important part of this in most big organizations. Okay. So I did an interview with Mikkel a few weeks ago, and he was talking about um, trying to create clarity on you know, what you were trying to achieve, achieve from a strategic standpoint so that the decision-making could be driven down to the team level because they knew what the priorities were. Yeah, because you're creating context for them to make trade-off decisions within. So, okay. so some of the stuff that Mikkel has talked about in the past, if you go back and read my HBR article from 2008, which informed and influenced Mikkel, by the way, um, you can take that out if you want to. <laughs> no. I'm not taking that out. It's perfect. Um, um, is, is if we start to really start to translate, trying to switch mindset in how we go after the market, from projects to capability or projects to products right. um, or, or projects to markets, having that ability to look at um, what is my strategy and what capabilities do I need to get better at or which market segments do I need to um, gain traction in, in order to be successful in achieving my strategy um, becomes an interesting conversation because if you don't if you don't have that sort of set of filtering at the very very top level, yeah, it becomes super difficult. If you, if you don't know what problems that you're trying to solve in the market, it becomes super difficult to even prioritize work through the system, right? So Mikkel was talking about ways to articulate and analyze that and build build a, a lens uh, based on business capabilities that you can look at in the marketplace or look at to translate your strategy into action. That lets you pick the things that are most likely to close the performance gaps in your market, the performance gaps in your organization's ability to deliver that help you achieve your business strategy. Now you're talking about performance gaps and things like that. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if maybe I'm being jaded or naive in thinking that a lot of people near the top of the food chain still believe the strategy is make a lot of money and take over the world. Like they don't, Maybe they don't. I'm wondering if in your experience, they actually are thinking down to the level of how do we increase capability? How do we increase optionality? How do we create a more flexible environment that our people can work in? Um, do they actually do they actually think about it with that lens or is that something that you're trying to help them get to? And again, it goes back to sort of which decisions get made, where the fractal nature of it. Um, okay. I think very few executives are got where they are by being as naive as saying, let's just make more money, make more money, cut costs, make more money. Right. I think what they're doing is they're talking to their organization or they have a vision in their head. Uh, I need to get after this market segment in order to make more money. You know, in order to increase my stock price, I understand I've got to shift from these transactional fixed revenue traditional models into getting recurring revenue models out of a new market segment. Because otherwise, the market I'm in is going to stagnate, right? Automobile industry. Okay. Um, I understand I've got to move from shipping DVDs to getting people to buy content online to stay alive. So Netflix, right? Yeah. Um, I think executives absolutely have that level of vision understanding, and they have compelling thoughts around that. How that translates into the projects that, a, that an individual team is working on or yeah. the um, and marketing initiatives are going on, I think it's really, really hard to connect that sometimes. So the, the capability work that Mikkel was talking about and some of the stuff we've done is a lens for translating that down. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the balanced scorecard work of Kaplan and those guys from before. 
Did Back you, in the you, day, I was you, very familiar with the balanced scorecard, but then yeah, I stopped doing that kind of work. <laughs> well, well, it's 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 interesting because because cascading balanced scorecards, when done poorly, are just destructive overhead that doesn't solve any problem. Right. And and probably not responsive enough um, to to rapidly changing conditions. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes sort of a one way push. Some of that's poor implementation. Some of it's just the nature of that tool. But, but don't I, you think it's a valuable tool from a, th- a thinking perspective? Like I remember introducing that into organizations that had never thought that way before. And they were like, holy shit, this is great. Yeah, I've got to make more money and have more customers. How am I going to do that? <laughs> well, here's how you make more money. Here's how you have more customers. Okay, what what are the processes? And that was process-based. The third tier was process-based. Right. So what are the processes in my organization? That was really at the time when we were doing business process reengineering, business process reengineering and processes were everything. Processes were kind of a lens towards capability. It just took on some meaning that meant certain things and it got overloaded. And then Six Sigma became um, something that changed the meaning of them even further. But what's the stuff that I do to deliver value to my customers is what that third tier is. Yeah. And then the fourth tier is, and what do I have to get better at in my organization to close those gaps? Very much trying to narrow the thinking of what do I invest in in order to achieve my strategy? And if you don't, if you don't land on my balanced scorecard, um, why are we spending money or energy on it? Right. Right. So, so, so sure, a bad implementation, too much overhead, too linear, too much one way. But you throw that out. How are you closing those gaps in your organization today? Um, and, and what you end up doing is you end up hiring really, really smart people that are really competent, putting them in individual groups across all the products of the organization and challenge them all to, to make the most money they can individually because that will roll up to the most money the company can make. Okay. But that's actually probably not true because I have limited capacity in my organization to do stuff. It's, it's probably not true because um, every idea I have isn't actually equally valuable valuable in how I want to be positioned as a company in the future. Um, there are probably some things that make sense to invest in that make less money today than something else. There's also a bunch of unknowns um, that I need to be playing options. I need to go test these six things to determine which two to invest in. And I might need to get out of four of them really quickly. And I might need to kill these uh, investments over here. Um, those are really hard conversations to have in the organization when your feedback mechanism is coming directly from the people at the metal doing the work, because none of them are trying to under, none of them can make a decision in a vacuum about whether they should be killed or not, right? They're all doing right. the most that they can to make the most money with what they've been challenged with. They're probably compensated that way. They're rewarded that way. They're built that way personally to maximize the success of what they're responsible for. And, um, and so lacking the lens or the ability to have those difficult conversations is one of the reasons why we're working on 20 times more things in organizations than we have capacity to deliver. So is this, I mean, when you're having this conversation, are you starting out like just kicking off of what you just said? Is it that you start talking to them about limiting WIP or are you talking to them about selecting a technique for prioritization or like, how do you, how do you find your way into helping people see through this thing? I'm going to give you three different patterns. Um, okay. The, 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 most pra- the most pragmatic one that we walk into typically today is we've been brought in to help them create predictability, improve quality, shorten time to market, improve their product fit, right? One of the things that we do early on is we form stable teams. 
we get them to be able to make and keep a sprint commitment and we get them to be able to make and keep a, a release commitment. We start organizing work and getting smaller batches. And somewhere in the first 30 to 60 to 90 to 120 days, the organization realizes it becomes very, very clear to them that it is not in their best interest to work on 10 times or 20 times more things than they have capacity to deliver. That that is, in fact, at some point, slowing them down and increasing their cost and decreasing their quality. It's going against all the things that they want. Yeah. I can't respond so- to the market. I can't learn. I can't. My quality is going down. My predictability is crap because I'm working on 40 things. So they come to the realization that they've got to focus their efforts. Okay. I mean, I would think that from, if you're trying just to get a, a team to be able to make a commitment in a sprint, you're already having that capacity conversation. So even if you're just talking about at the team level, you're raising awareness and hopefully that will bubble up to try yeah. to prime, prime the system for understanding that better. Yeah, so it's cool. So on the fractal nature of things, the team realizes it. They push it up to like their their product owner. Their product owner in most organizations we're in is not, is not a guy who's actually sitting on the strategy committee anywhere, right? Um, they're actually trying to operate within a roadmap that's been established by product manager and some set of business executives. So they they realize the constraint with the delivery team as they start to plan it. They run into the limitation. They take it up to the portfolio tier which is where roadmap, rationalization, capacity demand planning takes place there. And then you've got a bunch of teams across the organization pushing up that way. And now the investment tier in our model, all of a sudden you've got executives looking at it going, I've got everybody telling me they can't do everything that they've promised. It's very frustrating. So what are my options? Well, your options are to increase capacity exponentially to deliver everything, which will take a long time. Right. It not make sense because you're probably not going to have this level of demand across everything forever. Um, or you can sequence the work through the system to maximize the throughput across the board. Um, and then everybody can do stuff as fast as they can. But pragmatically, you probably don't have a good mix of the most important investments across your portfolio. You're probably investing in some stuff that isn't as important as other stuff. So now I want to start to talk about how do I focus on the things that are most likely to advance my strategy and not spend as much money over here. Okay. Not as valuable. But those decisions can't get those decisions kind of have to get made above above a certain level in an organization. Yeah. Nobody's going to voluntarily kill their own project. People aren't wired that way. And yeah, they want to serve, they they don't don't want to get fired. Yeah. May, may, maybe some people would because they're that altruistic and they see the bigger picture. But in most organizations, people are going to try to make their projects last as long as possible, make their products keep stay big and adding stuff as long as possible because that's how they get rewarded compensated that's where their personal safety and personal value comes from so all right i have two questions and this might throw a wrench into the conversation a little bit but i want to back up um a few minutes ago you were talking about getting the teams up and running you talked about making and meeting sprint commitments you also talked about making and meeting commitments at the release level Yes. And everybody who's taken one of my classes is going to seize up if I don't ask you, how does that work? Because that's, I mean, like when I'm teaching straight up Scrum, that would be something I would teach them the, the opposite of that, like that the release plan is constantly changing. How do we get to lock in the release? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and, then, and I'm taking this, I, I'm going to. Yeah, yeah I got it. I got it. I don't, Chet, Chet I don't, told me to say <coughs> we don't commit to the release. Yeah, I don't know that there's a lot of organizations that I've been in 
that the marketing organization or the business facing, the customer facing organization is like, yeah, I don't care what we're going to get in the next quarter. Just we'll get what we get when we get it. Just tell us what you're going to do. And, and <laughs> we're and, agile, man. Wave your hands around. We'll, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll just respond at the end of it. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is I'm going to tell you what the scope is in the next release. Given all the crap in your organization, your capacity constraints, your dependencies, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you how to hit a release, the next release, and nail it. Um, I might not tell you exactly what the functionality is. We're going to determine scope and do trade-offs within those problems. Okay. If we need to pull a feature out, we're gonna pull it out knowing it's gonna be done intentionally. It's not gonna show up as something different than you thought it was going to be when you got started. And hopefully we're gonna learn early what we have to pull out. But we'd like to be as predict, that's, that's that predictability thing. We'd like yeah, to yeah. be as predictable as possible because our market requires it. We're not inventing brand new products and brand new markets and 80% of the organization we're delivering to expectations and to a cadence and to market expectations and financial spends and customer expectations. I mean, we can't just show up with whatever the hell we want to. Yeah. Okay, good. We're, we're actually saying the same thing. I think we are just saying it different ways. Um, okay. The other question you're talking about, um, unless they're really altruistic, they're not going to kill off their project. They want to live as long as possible to live as long as possible. Does this maybe signal that there is a compensation problem in the company as to like, I'm going to get paid if I can keep my project alive, but you're telling me that maybe the responsible thing to do is to sacrifice my project on the altar because it really doesn't matter as much as some of the other stuff, but then I don't have a job. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you look at, when you look at the competitive investment models that we see in some organizations today, um, People show up um, and they go, so we're going to do quarterly planning. It's like a VC model. And I'm going to fund your product um, for the next 90 days. If you can prove to me that you hit your goals and I should continue to invest in it. Right. Those, those very dynamic VC-based funding models are kind of what I'm talking about. Okay. What, what's interesting about that is that can be super dynamic and super challenging. It's a good way to do it. Um, but at the top level strategic planning level, do you think that those investors are really taking those bets as individual bets and just um, move those things individually? Or do they have a vision and a strategy and they're looking at a portfolio of positions in an industry or a market or, or a, a, um, a set of conditions in, in, in the market and they're trying to position themselves and they're making trade-offs. It's just like it's just like at the release level, I've got the features that I know are going to be in that release, but I'm gonna make trade-offs within there to deliver that release. They kind of know where they wanna go in the market. Okay. And they're playing a portfolio of bets in the organization to achieve that outcome. They may actually have competing projects going to see which one's going to win out and will be the next best investment because investing in one of them and losing is a bad plan. Right. But investing in one, investing in two of them and killing the one that, that has the best chance of winning is a good plan. Um, they may actually decide to kill both of them and buy a competitor when they realize how hard it is to get there, right? Okay. So, so their stable view is, I think we want to take this position in the market. I think we want to please these customers in this way. I think, I think we want to get this type of revenue from these types of customers um, in the future. But their, their decisions are, which which parts of the organization they're investing in. So it's right. fractal. It's fractal, but it's it's a whole different mindset. Okay. Just like a developer may kill a story or slice a story. Yeah. 
limit a story. Yeah, they're doing it with positions in the market. And for this to work, like you said, they've got to have explicit clarity on what return actually means, because otherwise you're just going to be chasing either whoever asked last or whatever is going to bring like the most money instead of things like optionality or learning or other stuff that you might need more at this moment. Yeah, when you compare the old prioritization models of, okay, which one has the best net present value and let's invest in that one that next. And all these projects all have different net present values, but nobody's taken into account um, the impact on our technical debt or the dependencies that injects in the organization or the competing nature in the market that these things bring up or all that sort of stuff. It, it's, not a good, it's not a good way to invest. So I need a prioritization lens, which is of everything in my portfolio, am I investing in the way that most likely gets me where I want to be in the market? three years from now, two years from now, five years from now. Um, and, and then these are individual investments against my position in the market. So I'm comparing them against a future, an envisioned future state. I'm not comparing them against the net present value of each one. Right. I could, well, this, this pie making thing looks like it can make a whole lot of money for us because there's a lot of people that like pies. Well, but if I could sell soccer balls in China, there's 6 billion people in China. So I could sell a lot of soccer balls over there. But we're a freaking aeronautical manufacturing company. So let's neither one of those, neither one of those are important to us, right? Um, and it sounds silly, but that lack of strategic clarity leads to a ton of churn in a bunch of organizations. And we see it every day. Particularly, David, when the Dave, when the when the markets are shifting as much. You know, we have, yeah. we, have we have customers that are going from, from one way of doing business to a completely different way of doing business. Because, because they're being required to, to keep their stock price up or compete in the market against competitors. Um, they, have to have pretty, they have to have pretty actionable clarity of what their position in the market looks like um, two years from now to be making bets that, that move them that direction. They can't just keep betting on the things that have some historical NPV or IRR or right. shorter weightest costs or whatever your prioritization model has been. It's about... Where am I going in the marketplace? So is there a particular model you would recommend at this point? You know, so it's the, the, the thing that becomes very interesting is creating an organization, going back to our first and second things, creating an organization which is shaped in such a way that those decisions um, are actionable. So if I can build a product-driven organization where my organizational design, my compensation models, my technology, my teams, are all shaped around something that recognizably, recognizably has contact with the customer, so product facing, or I can do a capability-based organization. So all the things, the technology, the organizational design, the funding, the compensation, are wrapped around a capability. I can start to have, I can start to have actionable decisions when I come into contact with the market. In order to make this change, I have to change these three or four things. I can understand where to go make those changes. Um, so I think it's the design of the system. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how to define your strategy. I'm going to tell you how to, how to create clarity in your strategy, capabilities or products, probably a combination of the two. Um, what changes have to be made to create your position in the market you want to have two years from now? What are the gaps in the way you perform today or your products perform today for you to achieve your future vision? And now, because my organization and my portfolios and my financial instruments and my uh, technologies are actionable within either products or capabilities, I can translate that strategy pretty quickly. 
um, I can I can test some things pretty quickly because I have smaller batches flowing through. And if it's a bad idea, I can change my mind with feedback pretty quickly. So when you take the first two conversations we have, they all fit together yeah. to, to enable the organization to be adaptive and, and to actually respond to the market better. Um, you know, there are clearly... Um, Clearly, how you define value and how you prioritize value and how you create tranches of your portfolio and how you prioritize investments um, need to be wrapped around something that can be translated to market-facing, customer-facing impact. Those are either capabilities or products. Okay. I got a bunch of questions. I have a bunch of questions for you now. Um, you was talked that, a few was, was that was that kind of clear though? Did that all connect together for it, you? It kind of mostly does. I'm still trying to, and I'm assuming the people listening are too. I'm still trying to get there. Like I got I have edges of it, but I want to try to fill in some of these gaps. So you were talking about figuring out, you know, what bets to place. And I'm wondering if there's any kind of reconciliation or, or anything you can say about how we're going to track performance in terms of hitting the bar that we say we're going to hit because it's easy for me to say, Oh, this is going to make a billion dollars. Um, here's my indicators, which I've just pulled out of my nether regions. Um, what kind of stuff should we be looking at to figure out whether or not we were successful or is that going to be a depends every time because they're all trying to do different stuff? Well, the more clarity you have and the more explicit you are with what you think you're going to accomplish, um, from a market result standpoint, I'm going to get more customers here. I'm going to get more stickiness here. I'm going to get more renewals here. I'm going to get more, um, more vendors in my pipeline selling my financial instruments here. The right. more explicit you can be in those conditions and how you're going to measure it, the more likely you are to be able to test it. The more thoughtful you are in what are the leading indicators in the organization that I need to be able to prove, I've got more people coming into my store. I've got more people hitting my website. I've got more people registering for membership, right? Um, uh, the better off you're going to be able to, um, to adapt if you're not on track with those things. So we're forcing conversations around what does it really take to accomplish my strategy rather than go accomplish these big goals and just hopefully somebody figures it out. Okay. Um, come talk to me about why that investment is going to accomplish an outcome that matters to my strategy and how I'm going to know in the next 90 days that you're on track. That's a conversation we need to be having pretty early on, pretty high up. Yeah. I would think that would be a pretty frequent conversation. Yes. Yeah. And that's why things like annual planning cycles, stagnant annual planning cycles, where we actually start preparation for the funding of the annual planning cycle um, in March of the previous year. Right. We're actually, we're actually like 20 months out making strategic decisions about what we're going to be starting work on by the end of the following year. And then these projects last a year or two. Sometimes we're 20 to 30 months out from actually impacting the market with the decisions we're making. And sometimes that's reasonable, right? If I'm building a brand new manufacturing plant or a giant oil refinery, that's that's rational. But it, but if I'm building software or I'm changing my service or I'm tailoring the interaction model with my customers, I can't be 30 months out. Okay. So, so, so we need a tighter decision. We need a tighter framework for making those decisions. But it's about it's about defining what success means earlier in the process. Okay. 
And so let's say you go into an organization and you sense that they have a need for this stuff. Um, you start to talk to them about, you know, all the things we're talking about now and how to prioritize, prioritize things at a strategic level, hopefully beyond something like, you know, just NPV or whatever. Um, it's a longer game that you're trying to play, right? Like what is the best, not just let's get this product out the door so it can make a lot of money, but what is the right thing to do for the longevity and survival and growth of this company? Yeah. So increase or protect revenue, decrease or prevent costs, increase or or um, maintain our risk compliance, right? Or decrease risk or maintain compliance um, okay. in brands. There's a list of things that you're trying to do there. Um, and a project needs to tie explicitly to one of those and be able to demonstrate that progress. Um, okay. So they're not going to be trying to do multiple types at once or focus on multiple things at once. You might have, you might have investment portfolios that are doing one or more of those. But then you have to be really, really aware when you get into competing demand across, if you have the same team trying to work on 10 of those on 10 different projects at the same time, you run into that same problem. We're working on everything at the same time and everything is taking too long. What, what okay. happens if I don't prioritize those at the top, then, then somebody in the organization is setting those priorities or some developer by what they decide to work on is actually setting the priority of what's coming out. Yeah. Okay. So there's going to have to be some kind of education of the middle layer, middle management PMO layer, in, both in terms of what the company's trying to achieve um, and also how to create room for, for that prioritization to filter down, right? Like you don't, if you've got the developer driving everything, because there'll be just people just punting on the decision-making, that's not, unless that person knows how to maximize return, that's not a good option. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So you walk in, you talk to them about all this stuff. We, we're going to pick some way of trying to prioritize the work. We're placing these bets, which we're maybe testing every quarter. Um, now, are you going to see return quick enough for, for that to be like a, a good feedback loop? Or does there have to be some kind of other indicator? No, if, depending on how you, how you chunk the work up, and what you tell them, they'll start to see return really, really quickly. What happens is they start to feel like they have control over their investment. They're able to think about it differently than they were before. Um, so think about this. Um, we've come in and we've got the team, so they're stable. We can now make and keep a release commitment. The problems we're now talking about is they're trying to figure out how to make trade-off decisions at the portfolio level across teams, across multiple investments. Right. We can give them a lens to do that. Um, that, that, that lens of how do I prioritize these things can be pretty subjective and loose at the beginning, but we're going to teach them how to become more and more empirical about whether they're being successful or not. And the system that we're building underneath that provides the feedback that they can make those trade-off decisions. Today, they couldn't pivot if they wanted to. Okay. So, so, so the, 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 the need for it emerges, and we solve it as they recognize the need for it. And it might keep changing as well, correct? It should keep changing and moving up and, and maturing. That's right. So they're going to maybe start out with something as basic as Moscow and then find a way into something a lot more insightful. Yeah, or they might be doing, they might be doing something Moscow-y at the delivery team level, something shorter way to job first at the feature level, something portfolio investment. Um, horizon of investment sort of at the at the portfolio level and some sort of capability prioritization at the investment level, but they all inform each other. Okay. 
So we have to not only have clarity on how we're going to prioritize this stuff, but the impact that everything's having, what's working, what isn't, how these things mesh together. That's got to be clear up and down the food chain. Yeah. And that's so the thing we talked about is building that intentional model yeah. of governance where things flow up and down with the feedback loops. Okay. Where value is getting defined on the upper left in that governance model as we start moving and we're getting feedback as we're going on value. And we're doing smaller batches, so we're getting faster feedback. That's how we operationalize um, making this work. Okay. So what kind of questions do people, I mean, is this something that when you go in and talk, they just get, or is there are there parts of this that people find more of a struggle than others? Some, some people get it. The, the bigger challenge that we run into and the, and the work you have to get good at is, well, but I don't want to not work on everything. Well, okay, this is awesome because this was a question in my class last week. How do I convince them? I mean, because in my class, I can say, look, there are no studies that show multitasking works. Everybody will agree it doesn't work. Your company still thinks you should be doing it. This yeah. is a weird thing because from a logical perspective, everybody knows this is a falsehood. But on all the companies, they still say, yeah, yeah, but we're, we're different. We're going to do it anyway. How do you talk them out of that? Well, I think the way that you have to do it is you have to move pretty far up in the organization. Um, I, and and I, I don't think that executives actually believe, so this is interesting. I don't think that executives actually believe they're going to get everything. I believe that they're going to create crises and drive the things through that are most important late when they have more information. They're just starting everything at once so they have more optionality. They think they have more optionality. And in pra practice, they probably do, David, because, because most organizations aren't designed to learn and pivot. So then you're gonna start as much stuff as possible and then yeah. put pressure on the most important things um, late. So they're trying to defer commitment to what's gonna get finished by starting everything at once. But isn't there also a bit of punting? Like they're saying, oh, well, you know, the ones who are really good, they'll get their stuff done. Yep, they'll get their stuff done. We never fail to deliver it's like our Darwinistic. Most yep, we never fail to deliver our most important projects. That's why we, that's why we put our, mo our best people on it. Um, but it's the only way that they, that it can operate. So it's because historically, historically, that's the only way they could get stuff through the system. But now if we can teach them, listen, this team will be stable. Look here, this part of the organization is hitting every single release. Now the best thing to do is to actually put the most valuable stuff in, not work on 30 things at once and, and panic. They've never been able to make and keep a commitment in the past. They've never been able to hit a date when they said they would in the past. So the best way to manage the system is just to uh, to put as much stuff in and create crisis when I need to, create as many options for what I'm going to finish by starting as much stuff as possible. Okay, can I play devil's advocate and try yeah. to see if I can get into an argument with you or a, a debate? Um, yeah, we're not going to get it all. We're going to start it all anyway, because some people are going to push it through. And you're going to say, well, that's full of waste. That's dumb. We should apply people to the stuff that's most valuable. Yeah, but we've always done it like this. Like, why should we change? It works. I have a job. Yeah. So what, what you can point out to people that care and, if, and, if, and people want to operate. See, see, it's fascinating because they've actually got their managers in the organization telling them that's true. Because they all want to stay busy and keep their stuff going. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like the whole system is perverted. Yeah. So, but here's what I'm going to point out. I'm going to point out, had this conversation recently. I hear you. Um, let me talk about your defect trends for the last three years. Um, you had a hundred production defects in 2015 
Um, in 2016, you had 500. In 2017, you had 1,900. It looks like you're going to end 2018 with about um, 2,500 production defects right. and three system outages. Let's talk about the source of that because I get that you think you're getting out of it what you want, but now, now you're going to move your whole organization onto this product because it's the way that you're going to, to get information uh, with your customers and you're going to do a bunch of different things you've never done with it before. But the way that you manage the flow of work into it, I promise you this thing is going to fall down and fail on strategic things you just promised the market this year. And some smart executive is going to go, well, I hadn't really put those pieces together because what you were able to do for me, Dennis, is tell me a story about why those defect rates are increasing with the way we're putting work in. How do we solve yeah. that? And I go, well, let me tell you the most important thing first off is you will not get less work out of the system in this new model than you did before. We're going to get as much stuff out. We you have your silly logic. We're going yeah. to get less stuff, but we're going to we're going to be doing less. We're going to do less simultaneously, but you're going to get you're going to get as much stuff out as you ever had, and you're going to see this defect rate drop dramatically. You're going to see this predictability go up. We're going to but we're going to work on less. Oh, and by the way, if we do this smart, I think I can cut 15% of the cost of orchestration out, and we can either reinvest that somewhere else, or we can reinvest it into production capacity. And, 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 and I can on a board show them exactly how we're going to do that and then deliver on that in three to six months. Yeah. You do that a couple of times and they, then they believe you. They would rather have that less expensive, more predictable, higher quality system that still has all the optionality they ever wanted, that still has um, all the throughput they were paying for. We, we, literally, we literally, in one of our customers, have a case study where I think we almost doubled throughput while wow. reducing cost and increasing quality last year. Wow. And the guy goes, why weren't we doing this from the beginning? Now he's mad at everybody because they were doing it the old way. And they're all going, because you wouldn't listen to us. You made us work on everything at the same time. Right? But but they weren't telling him no. Right? They weren't giving okay. him an answer to his problem. Most of these guys that are executives are pretty freaking smart. So you just went through that whole thing. And I kept thinking about this scene in Mad Men the TV show where they went on this picnic in the park and it's this 50s scene. It's beautiful. You know, the family's having the picnic and they throw all their trash in the lawn. They walk away and I can go up to them and say, you can't do that. You're going to ruin the environment. Bad stuff's going to happen. It's kind of the same conversation you're having with these executives and they're like, yeah, whatever. And they just throw their garbage on the floor because that's what they've done. So how do you convince them that all the logic, all the truth, everything you're bringing is actually going to work? You know, one of the things you'll hear us talk about from time to time is a sense of is is language of loss versus language of gain. Okay. And when we talk about solving these problems as a language of loss, you can't work on everything at the same time. You can't have this. You can't have this. You can't. Right. Have this. You're just taking away. Yeah, I did a podcast with Mike about this a few weeks ago. Yeah. So it's language of gain. Let me tell you what. Um, you can leave that there if you want to, but um, when you come out here next time, it's going to be really messy. What if I told you that we could. Um, as you're doing your picnic, and I don't think this is a great metaphor, but what if I told you while you were doing your picnic, I could actually make it be less painful for you to eat and have all this stuff. And then when you were done, um, it would be clean for the next time. I can make it hard, I can make it easier now and easier in the future. The yeah. problem executives are dealing with is, is um, they don't know that it's actually easier now to get a better outcome in the future. Okay. Nobody's, nobody's given them a viable model and a viable approach and a viable um, 
um, you know, like, like, we can implement it. We can get the changes. You can have this future that's better and you can do it for less money, less painfully today. Yeah. They go, I don't believe you. Okay. Let me prove it in a small, is it worth, is it worth, let me do an experiment just to prove it over here. And if it works, we'll spread it just to those places where it makes sense for you in your organization. Like that's one way to break that. That's why we do incremental and iterative sometimes. Okay. Um, or they'll just go, no, it's stupid. You know, um, Alistair Coburn said one time, we might have to wait for a generation of executives to die off before we can solve yeah. these problems enterprises. But, but we're seeing more and more people kind of getting it. They just don't know how to get there. Um, and we're coming in behind agile practitioners a lot of time that have told them Scrum will solve it. But Scrum doesn't solve Scrum it. Scrum just makes the broken show up fast. Yeah, Scrum is not an answer to the problem. Right. And these other things we've been talking about, how do we build a resilient system? How do we build the feedback loops? We don't need to solve these problems from scratch anymore because we have patterns that work. What we need to do is give you answers to the problems that play you today and give you a path to improve to where you want to get to. Um, and we have that. So if I give them a pragmatic answer, yeah. the investment worthwhile and can justify it financially, an awful lot of executives are going to go, you know what, this makes a ton of sense to me. I'd like to operate this way. Or at least do an experiment in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take a crack at it. This doesn't look insane to me. I've just okay. never had anybody, I've never had anybody show up and have a conversation about how to actually get here. We yeah. get that all the time. You're having a different conversation than I've ever had with anyone before. Yeah, because it's a path. This was great. So I, I, I know we've got to go, but I appreciate you taking time out for this. And, and I'm really glad that we finally got to have this, this part of the conversation. Um, for folks that have follow-up questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, Dennis at leadingagile.com. Okay. And I'm going to include a link to the other two podcasts, to the white paper that you mentioned, um, and, and your contact info as well. Okay. I appreciate it, David. Cool. Thanks very much for doing this, Dennis. I really appreciate it. It's always, it's always amazing talking to you because you just fill my brain with stuff. So thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed oh, it. It was perfectly timed. <laughs>